All right, welcome to the Jason Tim Podcast. Thank you guys for taking time out of your day to come hang out and talk some hoops with Justin and I. I am super excited about this episode because one of my favorite things to do is tell old hoop stories. And when I can do that and talk NBA basketball, that's about as good as it gets. I'm going to bring Justin on here right now. What's up, man? How are you? Pretty good, man. How you doing? I'm doing well. So before we get started, I wanted you to give like just a quick little 15 second rapid resume about where you played and what your basketball background is, and then we'll get started. Cool. Um, I played at Clarion University. <clears throat> it's a small Division two school, um, like an hour outside of Pittsburgh, uh, Upper Western PA. Played there all four years. Um, had a decent career. Um, played against some pretty high level guys over my course of my time there. And then after that, shortly started playing like semi-professional locally in uh, the DC, Maryland area. Um, been pretty much doing that ever since. That's awesome, man. Um, yeah. So for those of you who don't know me, similar story. I played NAIA. I played junior college up in Utah. Um, was a real late bloomer. I started playing when I was 20 and, uh, uh, had a couple of seasons at JUCO and then I played in the NEIA and then same thing. I played at a couple of different semi-professional things and I was supposed to go play in a league in India, had a contract and everything. And then that league folded. And then at that point, my wife was like, it's time to hang them up. So now I just do it for fun and, and play on the local scene and I'm kind of enjoying it. Although I'll always, you know, it's always hard. And I know, you know what this is like. It's always hard to not just drop everything and try to do it again. But (laughs) you got to find a a way to be a grown up. You know what I mean? Um, So today we're going to primarily focus on uh, on the Warriors and this offseason, which I think is going to be one of the more pivotal offseasons in their franchise history, Uh, mainly just because the difference between them going on another run of contention here or kind of disappearing into the middle of the Western Conference is going to entirely depend on how they uh, put pieces around their core three guys. And my, my initial take on that is going to entirely depend on one of my overarching basketball ideologies. Everybody's got their overarching basketball ideologies that shape most of their opinions. And one of my big ones is quite simply that really young basketball players don't know how to win. And uh, my favorite example of this is, you know, I I live in Tucson, Arizona, which is where the University of Arizona is. And they consistently every single year have one of the best recruiting classes in the country. They constantly get top five or five star recruits, top 10 recruits in the country that come through this school. And then we lose. We lose early and often in the in the tournament. And we and the main reason for that is, is there's a huge difference between projecting someone's potential and projecting their current impact on winning right now. And uh, there are a lot of guys that have come through this school. Aaron Gordon's a great example, a guy like Stanley Johnson, who kind of struggled understanding how to contribute in a winning environment at Arizona, who then went on to have much more success in the NBA. Aaron Gordon is my uh, the best example you can think of someone like that. Um, but the main reason for that is I think that every like young player is primarily focused on kind of themselves And when they go to the gym and when they work on their game, they're primarily focused on what they can do to be better individually. And then every single player kind of twists and changes, like kind of transitions into a phase of their career where they primarily focus on the scoreboard and what it takes to impact winning, especially within the team construct. And some people make that change faster than others. 
but everybody is going to have to make that change. And almost never will you find a player that's that young that already knows how to contribute at that level. And like the, you know, there are a couple examples in NBA history of young guys who have done winning early, like John Morant and uh, Donovan Mitchell, Dwayne Wade's even a great example. But the huge difference is they were drafted into a situation where they were supposed to be the best player on their team. And more importantly, they were surrounded by veteran players who did all of that dirty work for them. Dwayne Wade played with Alonzo Mourning and James Posey and Antoine Walker and, you know, all of these guys who were able to do all of that heavy lifting mentally for him so that they could just shoot Dwayne Wade out of a cannon to be a wrecking ball and understand that all of the fine details of winning they could take care of. And exact same thing with Donovan Mitchell. He played with some of the smartest players in the game, like Ricky Rubio, Joe Ingles, and Rudy Gobert, and Jay Crowder, guys like that. So in my opinion, you know, when we're shaping this forward, even when you look at the players in this draft that are, you know, kind of advertised as guys who can be right away type of winners, like that Denny Avija, I think is the main one that a lot of Warriors fans bring up. Even with a guy like that, in my opinion, just an average role player, a guy like Jeff Green would impact winning more right now and over the next couple of years than he could. And the main reason for that is if you look at Jeff Green, he's made that transition. If you look at 2018 with the Cavs, he understood mentally that his peak as a winner was as a guy who ran in transition, got easy layups and dunks, knocked down open threes as, as best as he could, made simple plays out of closeouts, and defended on the other end of the floor. And so from that standpoint, if I am a Warriors fan, I think you have to trade the pick. And I think you have to just understand that it's going to hurt in the future potentially to see whoever this kid is end up being a better player than whoever you got. But understand that within this tight little two or three year window where you plan on contending that whoever you got is going to bring more to the table within the scope of winning, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Um, no, I definitely agree. Um, I wouldn't necessarily trade the pick for like someone like Jeff Green, but I would, (laughs) (laughs) I would definitely like initially think, Hey, like, let's see what we can, we can get maybe like trade down for a player and a pick, um, for someone that's, that's more, um, ready to, to contribute to winning, to winning right away. And you can still get a young guy that you can possibly groom that can help you farther down the line or even, uh, play spot minutes in the playoffs now and kind of help you get to where you want to go. Yeah. And like, and for sure you can do a lot better than Jeff Green with that pick. I just think yeah. that Jeff Green is a great example of the fact that that veteran player that understands in his finite role that he's going to have on this team, what they're going to be asking him to do. Cause they're not going to be asking much of him. If you look at what that team already has on paper, you've got like four starters at 35 plus minutes a night, completely taken up. So you're basically looking for rim running and defense from your center position. And you're looking for backup playmaking and spot up shooting and things along those lines. And so from that standpoint, um, like there is absolutely no way in my opinion that you can get as much quality out of drafting, even at high as high at number as number two, as you could, um, uh, looking elsewhere and trying to just make the most of what of, of what there is. And I think your example is great that trading down and getting, you know, some kind of mid-level veteran role player 
And then understanding that if I pick at 17 or 22, that guy has just about the same amount of chances impacting winning this season as number two. Because, like, do you think James Wiseman can go head-to-head with Anthony Davis in a playoff series right now? <laughs> no, Probably not. not. In, te- in five years? Probably. But right now, I have a feeling that that matchup is just going to be too much for him mentally to understand the little things he'd have to do to match Anthony Davis's impact. And uh, so from that standpoint, like, I think that that's where, where that um, uh, uh, decision has to be based on. So the main guys that have been floated around for the Warriors at number two are Killian Hayes, Anthony Edwards, LaMelo Ball, this Denny Avija guy, and then James Wiseman. And I suppose, and this is my next question for you, is if you had to pick, let's say there's no trade available or nothing that uh, is of a certain amount of value that Bob Myers would be willing to accept, which one of those guys would you have if you had to pick one? Um, I'd probably say I'd take Wiseman right now, probably because like the center is probably our weakest position at the moment. And his measurables are like, oh, they, they jump off the uh, paper for you. You know what I mean? Like they, I just read the other day, he has like a nine, six standing reach, something like that. Is so like, yeah, it's like, he has absurd measurables. He, he's a freak athlete. He has a lot of size, which we're, which we're lacking inside. And even though he can't necessarily match up with a guy like Anthony Davis, like mentally yet. At, at least he has like the physical attributes to to bang with some of the bigger centers or some of the some of the guys with size that we're going to see in the Western Conference, like a Jokic or even like um, whether or not Dwight comes back to the Lakers, but somebody like a Dwight or whatever the case may be. Um, and I think, as you said, like younger guys coming in, they they typically think like me, me, me. Like how can I improve myself? Um, and all those other guys that you name are either wings or guards, which is is even going to be more towards that I want to develop my own game let's see how many points I can average whatever the case may be whereas a Wiseman I think a big might be easier to convince to like buy in on defensive end early on in his career rather than focus on like how many points he's scoring and stuff like that that makes sense that's actually a really good point like I think the Wiseman has the best capability of potentially accepting that smaller role I uh, one of my favorite things about this year's Laker team was the fact that every single one of their role players had a really small role. And when you give a limited player a very small role, it's much easier for them to, you know, excel in that role than it is when you're asking them to do a lot. And I agree, like if you draft someone like Anthony Edwards, if you draft someone like Lamella Ball, you're asking them to come in and play make, which at this level is arguably the toughest skill. It's arguably the hardest thing to do from a decision-making standpoint. Like even when you watch young players now, you know, when you watch Killian Hayes next year or LaMelo Ball, you're going to see them have two or three possessions in a row where they make a good play. And then they're going to go, you know, right off and do something stupid because that's just the natural thing that happens when you're dealing with that type of young player. And then also I think with Wiseman, you have the best capability, I think, of potentially flipping him at the trade deadline if you had to. Um, to to some team out there that has, you know, like the good, the best example of someone like this would be maybe a team like the Pistons who foolishly convinces themselves that, you know, we can maybe compete in the East with a healthy Blake Griffin. And then they get out there and they start getting their ass kicked and pretty quickly they're, you know, seven and 22. And it's like, okay, it's time to rebuild. Why don't we go after Wiseman? Why don't we go after someone like that? And, 
um, uh, that, that I think Wiseman gives you the best chance of flipping him if you need to. But like, so let's, let's talk about the, the Warriors needs, because, you know, if you look at the 2016 Warriors, which were arguably one of the top three or four teams ever, and uh, arguably, I'm never going to allow this to be say, stated as fact, but arguably, had they stayed healthy, they would have won the championship that year. Um, they were built on the Steph Curry offensive formula of, you know, drawing attention and players kind of feeding off of the attention he draws. And then Clay Thompson, who is without a doubt a better player now than he was in 2016, as long as his knee can hold up. But Clay is weirdly, you know, just Clay is just kind of a physical freak in that sense. So I, I think yeah. he had a chance of coming back. He's like an iron um, man, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then you've got Andrew Wiggins, who I don't think that much of him, and I know you don't, and I know most people don't, but it is completely reasonable to think that he could be Harrison Barnes. You know, when you look at what they were asking uh, Harrison Barnes to do in that role. So there is a very clear, like, there's pathway you can follow mentally to see how this team can compete. But one of the most important things about that roster was the fact that when they downsized, they had a wing that could guard bigs in Andre Iguodala. Right. Same with Harrison and, too. Yep, and then they and then they had a bench full of really really savvy veteran players, Leandro Barbosa and, and Sean Livingston and all those guys. So the key there is like to follow that mold. You need to look for because I don't. A lot of people talk about Bogut, and Bogut, in my opinion was not as important on that team as portrayed. He only played, I think if I'm not mistaken, like 10 minutes a game towards the end of that playoff run. Uh, He was not all that involved. It primarily to me comes down to finding a really big wing so that you can downsize and then finding just smart basketball players that can make decisions in four on threes and three on twos off of Steph Curry double teams, if that makes sense. Where do you land on that? Um, I'm I'm right there with you. Like you said, um, the 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 main thing that I that I remember from those Warriors teams, like prior to KD's arrival, I mean, even with KD's with KD there, is that it's similar to how the Lakers operated this year, where they just had, like you said, a bunch of mini roles that people can that people can fill, and they were versatile as far as like they had size. If they wanted to go big, they can go big. If they if they wanted to go small, which they did mostly because teams at that time really couldn't handle it they went small but they they had guys that can guard up they had Draymond and and, and Iggy and, and Harrison who can guard up so I think Clay could guard up. right and Clay can guard up so it's like it, it, they really never really gave up any size even when going down um so I think that's definitely should be a priority getting like bigger wings who can guard um if like LeBron goes to the four or something like that or uh they put 80 at the five or Kawhi goes um, to the to the three, whatever the case may be, um, they need to have that versatility to be able to match teams size wise, and as well as like IQ and skill has to has to follow as well because you can't just match teams with size and then you just don't have any shooting or whatever the case may be. So I think yeah, definitely defense and like versatility should be their primary like focus. Yeah, and there are a couple of players who fit that mold. Um, cause like, so Andre Godala was about strength. Like that dude was just unbelievably strong for a player who played that position. Um, the other players that I thought that kind of fit, uh, potential, 
this potential role. One of my favorites was Wesley Matthews and secretly I'm hoping the Lakers get him, but uh, Wesley Matthews is, is a player who is undersized. If I'm not mistaken, he's only like six, five or six, four, but Wesley Matthews is uh, he, his defensive principles are based on getting super low and uh, um, like getting up underneath guys and forcing them to shoot over the top with his ridiculous lateral quickness. So a player like that is what would allow you, because you got to think everything to me with the Warriors has to be framed through what their late round playoff matchups would be, which in this case right. is in all likelihood, in all likelihood they're going to have to go through both the Clippers, the Lakers, or at least the one who won in that matchup. So from that standpoint, at any given moment, you're going to be dealing with, either two massive front court players in Anthony Davis and LeBron or dealing with uh, uh, two extremely versatile wings in Paul George and in Kawhi Leonard. And a guy like Wesley Matthews is an example of a player who you could probably get with your mid-level exception who uh, would at least make those guys shoot over the top. Because even with LeBron, if you watch in both of their matchups this year, uh, particularly uh, even when they won in L.A., Wesley Matthews was forcing uh, LeBron into fadeaways and forcing him into taking shots away from the basket. The only time he ever really got to the rim on him was in pick and roll uh, when they were using JaVale McGee to like kind of like run him out of the lane and then uh, like basically throw blocks for LeBron. In isolation, he was forcing him to shoot over the top, which is really all you can ask for uh, from a player, especially at that, at that pay level. The other guys that have been tossed around, Robert Covington, um, uh, Jeff Green, there's uh, the older Holiday brother, Justin Holiday, guys like that. But I don't think, like, I worry about guys like uh, Robert Covington and Justin Holiday being a little too skinny because the problem is, with like, again, what makes that work is Draymond Green's strength and Andre Iguodala's strength and their ability to match up with the size. And so from that standpoint, I just don't see uh, 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 getting it. Like there's an obsession with wings in today's NBA, this idea that you need to get as many wings as you can get. But the reality is, is I think it's more versatile size and size can be distributed in many different ways. Like I played, uh, a lot bigger than my position in college because I weighed 225 pounds. So I was able to guard bigger players. And when you look at like even this Houston Rockets team this year, this past year, everybody complained about how short they were because even their wings were short. Um, but every single player on that team was strong and yeah. you couldn't just back them down. And, and from that standpoint, I think that would be the big one because even with guys like Clay and Steph and Andrew Wiggins, they're little thin. And that physical wearing and that physical wear and tear would be the big thing that I would look out for with them. Uh, no, I definitely agree. I think another guy's name has been floated around is that like Jay Crowder. Um, he he that same like mold. Yeah. So if they if they can find a way to land a guy like him, that would be that would be huge as well. So let's let's uh, let's focus on a hypothetical scenario where the Warriors get, let's say they get their, like their dream off season. Okay. They, uh, <clears throat> they trade number two and they get a high quality center and another pick. Like, let's say they trade them to, um, who's it that has Capella? Is it Washington? Let's say they get like Capella and, you know, an, a late second or late first round pick or something like that. Just a, a, a league average center. 
And let's say that they get Jay Crowder and let's say they get Wesley Matthews and they are structured, let's just say comparable to the 2016 Warriors, not quite as good, but comparable. And they end up cruising through the season. And let's say the Lakers also add Danilo Gallinari, some quality piece with that, because I think that needs to be factored in the Lakers. I can't say for sure who they're going to get, but it is in my, they're going to be better. They're going to get somebody. They're going to get somebody. And so from that standpoint, what do you think uh, uh, a Warriors Lakers series in that hypothetical would look like? Who would you pick and why? Um, let's say, okay, both teams have like a great off season. I'd say it's a toss up. I, I really don't know because I think so much rides on um, one is LeBron going <laughs> to full father time again and just be LeBron for another uh, postseason. I think that's like huge. If he is, then that obviously gives them like a great chance. I would probably give them the slight edge in that, in that scenario. And if Anthony Davis becomes a better like playmaker out of the post when teams doubling, um, because in that case, even if we do get like an average level center, they're probably going to have to double him. Even if they put Draymond on, they're going to have to double him out of the post and try to take him out of the game. Similar to how like um, Miami was doing, just like not letting him get touches and just kind of force the ball in his hand in the post. Um, so I, w- I would definitely say it's a toss up. I would say it comes down to the Warriors' ability to get those stops. Because um, even if we, even though we saw the Lakers defend at extremely high level throughout the postseason this past season, they have, they, they rotate well, they close out on shooters, they run out of the line. Um, but we saw in the 2019 playoffs. Um, with Toronto, how well they defended. And even even then, the Warriors kind of gave them some issues. We just didn't have enough guys to hit shots. Um, so I don't think offense is going to be a problem for, for really either team. It just comes down to, to who gets the most stops. And at that point, if if we bring in a guy like – if we bring in Jay Crowder and, and Wesley Matthews and guys who are really helping that in, um, I, I can't really say the Lakers would be that much more dominant defensively to kind of swing it heavily in their favor. And I can't say the same thing for the Warriors either. Um, I guess the the bias in me would lean like Warriors and seven or something like that, but uh, but yeah, I would say I would say it's a toss up, honestly. Um, and that's that's like the beauty of that's kind of that's kind of what we want to see, like not knowing necessarily who is going to win. Um, and yeah, that's that's where I stand on that. Yeah, so I mean, we're both biased, so we're both going to be looking at this in a particular way that uh, um, is going to favor our particular side. My case for the Lakers being a pretty significant favorite there is the fact that um, I do believe that styles make bites. I'm a big believer in playoff matchups and the way that they can swing series. Um, There's so many examples of it throughout NBA history where a better team throughout the regular season loses in the playoffs because of the way the things, the matchups work out. The best example of that is that 2008 or 2009 Cavs team that lost to the magic because they didn't have their centers were old and slow and couldn't stay with Dwight Howard and their guards were smaller and uh, and Orlando brought this unique challenge to the table in the form of these really tall perimeter players and Richard Lewis and uh, Ahito Turkoglu, who were just too big for the smaller perimeter players in uh, uh, with with Cleveland to guard. And, and it ended up literally swinging a series, even though LeBron was far and away the best player on the floor every single game, just because that's the way that playoff series work. And, you know, I've always been worried about the Clippers for the Lakers. And I, while I do think that the Lakers would have won 
against the Clippers, I think it would have been really close. I think it would have gone six or seven games and the games would have been super competitive. And the main reasoning behind that is the idea that um, like with these specific playing styles and roster constructions, the Clippers were built to beat the Lakers in the sense that they, uh, they had at least enough big, strong wings to force Anthony Davis to shoot over the top. They had all sorts of bodies to throw at LeBron and the Laker defense, which was built on the, the Laker defense was undersized. It's one of the big things that people forget. Like Avery Bradley was small. Danny Green, who was basically playing small forward for them, was pretty small for that position. He's like 6'6". You know, he's not a really overly large player. You know, uh, uh, Alex Caruso is only like 6'5". And, you know, Rajon Rondo is small. And and KCP is smaller. He's only like 6'4". So, like, all of these guys are, are, uh, you know, undersized relatively at their position. So they had to build their defensive scheme to match that personnel. So what they were doing was essentially having – uh, every single one of those guards error on the side of chasing guys off the three point line and ball pressure, getting up into people's shirts, understanding that uh, it will force them into the size and, and understanding that they're they're um, They can make up for the weakness of their size by making people drive into their taller players that they do have on the court in the form of LeBron, Anthony Davis and their centers. And so what the Clippers brought to the table, that was a challenge for that was Lou Williams was so remarkably good at those little floating jump shots and little teardrops and things in that 10 to 15 foot range. And he was so good at drawing fouls on bigs. And then Kawhi Leonard was so good operating out of the mid range as a scorer that when they got the switches they wanted with Kawhi, they were getting super high quality shots against the Laker defense at that mid range area. And then with uh, Lou Williams, when they put him in pick and roll, he was killing the Lakers centers and they only really basically forced them to put AD at the five. And so from that standpoint, like when I look at a potential Warriors uh, 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 Lakers matchup, what would worry me for the Warriors is that the idea of doubling Steph off of pick and rolls of double, like chasing him off the three-point line, forcing him to drive to the basket and make plays is kind of the whole design of their defense. It's kind of the entire, it's their entire winning formula. And so from that standpoint, like they don't necessarily have a guy that can kill the smaller Laker guards in mismatches. Um, the Lakers would always be able to go small so that the bigs that Steph could attack would have to be LeBron and Anthony Davis. And then, you know, I think it would basically come down to uh, uh, the, the warrior role players relying on guys like Andrew Wiggins and all of these future role players to be named later, making a ton of shots as the Lakers are scrambling and trapping out, out of Steph out of pick and roll. And then Steph would have to just make an unbelievable amount of shots in that mid-range area, like kind of like Lou Williams, just head of steam coming down off of a pick and roll. Um, or beating someone off the dribble who's overplaying the shot and him just making a a huge amount of floaters and scoop shots and all that kind of stuff. And so that, that I do think that, you know, you have to understand, like I, I am a Steph fan. I think he's the second best player in the league right now. I'm a huge believer in what he does offensively. I think he's a much better player than Kawhi Leonard, but I just think that this particular matchup kind of plays into the Lakers hands in the sense that 
the that their scheme, their the the way that they are constructed is kind of a scheme that theoretically could give the Warriors some issues, if that makes sense. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. And I think I think it's kind of like it's similar on the on the opposite end as well, where I mean Kerr has seen LeBron in the playoffs four four times, I'm pretty sure. Um, mm-hmm. We've seen Anthony Davis twice now. Um, obviously, Anthony Davis is a much better player now. Um, and LeBron, even in some ways, is even better than he was now, which is ridiculous. But um, <laughs> but um, they, they've always kind of like schemed to keep them away from the basket as much as possible. And obviously, the personnel then was a little bit different than it is now. But uh, hypothetically, if they get a similar personnel, they can kind of force them into the same type of looks they were given before. Not that they weren't having success, but um, a lot of times we they force LeBron into passing to guys that that are necessarily, aren't necessarily bad shooters, but like you said, you're going to force your role players to kind of hit shots. And I think is I think it, it, it kind of comes down to how well the superstars can kind of navigate those schemes and how well the role guys can kind of like step up and and hit the timely shots that they that they are going to need to hit. So I mean, none of this matters. Steph and LeBron are the best in the world at, at that kind of thing. That's what would make that matchup. Exactly. So exactly. Um, and the last thing I'll say about it is like, as far as I'm concerned, one of the biggest things that people forget about the Warriors because they were such an electric offense and they, and you know, Steph Curry revolutionized the game in the way that uh, we guard perimeter players and the way that perimeter players develop their game. There's so much focus on what the Warriors offense did. People forget that they were the best defense in the league. Uh, in 2015 and I think the best defense of the league again in 2016 or top two both of those years for sure and so from that standpoint like 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 that same thing happened with the the Lakers this year like there was all of this focus on LeBron and and him leading the league in assists and Anthony Davis averaging you know 29 points a game and all of this stuff and it totally took the focus away from the fact that you know when I was projecting these playoff series all I could think was uh, this Laker defense is the best defense in the league, and when it comes down, when it comes down to a uh, to LeBron controlling the pace and slowing everything down and keeping things in the half court on the defensive end and and getting out in transition selectively when it fit you know uh, their numbers and stuff, there was it was just extremely difficult for everybody to score, and that was what I noticed, and that was the reason why they were winning. It had very little to do with what they did on the offensive end of the floor. They could have been, you know, a significantly lesser offensive team, in my opinion, and still won the title because of how much their defense carried them for those stretches. And so from that standpoint, like to me, projecting the Warriors as I get into next season, as I'm watching offseason moves, as I'm watching the first 10, 15 games of the season, the number one thing I'm going to be watching when I'm thinking about what I conceive this team achieving this year, it's going to, it's going to all depend on the defensive end. Because I know that Stephen Clay and Draymond over the course of a season will figure out the offense. I don't care who, what role players they bring in. I don't care how much Andrew Wiggins struggles. I don't care who they end up facing in the playoffs. I know that they are going to be able to generate quality offense. That is, that is the biggest given of the century. The number one question mark for this team will be, can they get into a playoff series with a team like the Clippers who are likely to be much better next year and a team like the Lakers who are as dialed in defensively as you'll see from any team this decade, can they at least get close to that level defensively to where their offensive prowess can carry them over the top? And, and that'll be the thing to watch over the next, uh, 
what's going to be at what, like two or three weeks now with the way that this know, right? is shaping up. Yeah. It's crazy. But yeah, that's, I, I feel the same exact way. So um, it's definitely going to come down to, to, to fill in those pieces and thinking defense first when you're filling in those pieces. I think a lot of, a lot of guys are kind of attractive to Warriors fans because they can generate some offense or they can provide like some type of offense. And it's like at the, at the end of the day, Steph and Clay are going to, like you said, they're going to generate offense like no other duo that, that we've seen. And like, even you can see in the finals, granted, um, I'm, I'm pretty sure you're, you'll maintain the stance that the Lakers took a few games off on defense. <laughs> <in the finals. laughs> but um, we saw like the, the stuff that Duncan Robinson and, and Tyler Harrow was, was able to generate is when you, when you can shoot that well, it's kind of, you have to go out of your way to, to not at least generate some type of offense at a high level. Um, so I'm, I'm not even worried about the offense at all. It's more so about bringing in defense and bringing the versatility with the, the lineups that we can, we're able to throw out. I do think that the Warriors and the Lakers have the best chance to bring in high quality veteran players that are discounted. Um, the main reason, because like, you know, if, if I'm looking, if I'm looking as a veteran player, just like put yourself in these shoes, you're a player that money is no longer really a concern. Like, yeah, you could go make, seven or 8 million somewhere else, but you'd rather, you know, be in a better situation, a dream situation to make four or 5 million, for instance, right. if you're in that situation, I think you're looking at two main concerns. One is winning. Mm-hmm. And, and then two is going to be, you know, what the quality of the basketball and the locker room is going to be like, right? So, cause both of these teams are in California. So uh, like uh, coastal California. So like, it's not like the location is going to matter. You're going to be looking at like, am I going to enjoy being in this locker room? Am I going to be, am I going to be around good guys? Am I going to be in a, cause as, as someone who played in college, you probably understand better than most, just like I do that. Like, you know, the quality of the locker room is a huge impact on the, on how much fun the season is. I, I played on two different junior college rosters and a, an NAIA roster. And in each situation, like I, I got all ends of the spectrum. I got an average team as far as chemistry goes. I was on a team that all loved each other. And then I was on a team of Juco guys that all were out for themselves and, and, and the coach was terrible and everything under the sun. So from that standpoint, like if you're a veteran, you're looking at those things. And so if I'm looking for winning, uh, you know, the Lakers are a great selection and obviously the Warriors are too, but mainly that locker room piece. Like why in the world am I going to risk a Clipper locker room that has the potential to be an absolute dumpster fire. Why in the world am I going to risk a Philly locker room? That's going to be a dumpster fire. Why in the heck would I risk, you know, Boston who is famously has a fan base. That's a bunch of, you know, mouth breathers, you know, like there's a lot of different reasons why you're not going to pick the teams, but I know for a fact that the Lakers had one of the best locker room chemistry situations in the league this year. And I know for a fact that Steph Curry is one of the best leaders in the history of the NBA. And that if I'm in that locker room, I'm going to be happy. And so from that standpoint, I think that that gives them a huge advantage uh, moving forward. And then lastly, before we move on to some of this fun stuff, the, I am excited to watch Steph Curry this year because, you know, I am a big believer in what he does. And if there's one huge side effect of the Kevin Durant move, to Golden State, it's that it clouded a lot of the the perception of his career, in the sense that, like, if you're if you are a detractor, if you are a person that 
you know, wants to root against Steph for whatever reason, there's all the ammunition in the world based on Kevin Durant and based on the 2016 loss and based on the 2019 loss to paint him in a certain light. And it's unfair because if Kevin Durant wasn't there, we'd have another three years of evidence of, of what type of player he is, you know, um, uh, as that undisputed best player on the team. And I believe that had Kevin Durant not gone there, he probably still would have won one of the last three titles or, or maybe more, who knows, but I think, and I think he would be perceived in a different way. And so kind of like what LeBron had this year for the Lakers as a, as a season where he quote unquote reminded everybody, you know, just how good he is. I think this is Steph's opportunity for that. And I'm really, really excited to see, you know, a big giant FU season from him to remind everybody just how good he is and what he's capable of. And, uh, and then obviously we're going to have one of the greatest late round playoff, uh, you know, matchup between the, the three really, really, really good Western conference teams and, and the teams in the East, it's going to be as good as, as, as we've seen in NBA history, but I'm just really excited to watch Steph this year. And, uh, and I'm excited to see what he can bring to the table. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, I don't know if Kerr is going to, going to fully let him off the leash. <laughs> like like Luke Walton did in the beginning of that 2016 season when, when Kerr wasn't there and they, they just kind of went on that crazy run and he was scoring like 40 every other game or something like that. But yeah, I'm excited too. Um, the 2019 finals was kind of like another opportunity for him to kind of just like shut everybody up. Kind of came up short there. So I, I'm pretty sure that's in the back of his mind too. So mm-hmm. we, I'm sure we're going to see some some crazy stuff from him this year. And the 2019 finals is a great example of what we're talking about in this roster construction in the sense that like, like that team after Kevin Durant went down because they were constructed in a top heavy way, their lack of depth is what killed them against the Raptors. And, you know, I've seen a lot of guys, Tommy has gotten a lot of crap from Warriors fans for being too hard on Steph for that 2019 series, in my opinion. But the, the, the reality is, is that like, um, you know, what ended up swinging that series when their stars went down was they were relying too much on players who didn't have any idea how to impact winning on that level uh, in specific time, even even in tiny roles. And I I think that's what ended up swinging that. Um, All right. So you are um, the most experienced Hooper that I've had uh, come on this podcast. I know Tommy played a little bit in college too. But uh, what, I, the, what I'm really interested in here is the fact that you kind of grew up in a different area of the country because, you know, and I, I know this from when I lived in Charlotte, that like the hoop culture is just completely different as you get onto different areas of the country. And the, you know, the Southwest is very unique in that it's a lot of dudes from L.A. and Phoenix. And, and then you get in the East Coast and it's completely different. And I've, I've never been up into the New York uh, or into, up into the further Northeast area and you said you're in Pennsylvania, right? For college, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where do you live right now? You live in New York? I'm in D.C. D.C., okay, right on. Yeah. Uh, and I, hear, I hear this great hoop there, too. Uh, sure. But yeah. what I wanted you to start with is just uh, uh, tell me a little bit about, like, um, everybody's got their list. Everybody who's played in college has their list of NBA players that they've played with at various levels and various settings. So why don't you tell me about the NBA players that you've played against in various hoop settings over the last few years? Okay. Um, I'll start – I guess I'll start in high school. Um, 
it was actually my very last game in high school. We had just had like a pretty successful season, came from the playoffs, but we were good enough to to be asked to come into like a citywide like tournament. Um, and we got to play Sidwell Friends in the first in the first round of that tournament, who at the time had Josh Hart there. Um in his senior really? season. Getting, yeah, getting ready to go to Villanova. Um, so I matched up with him. It was a it was a pretty cool experience. Like I have I played pretty well when that uh, like 20 or something points, right? But he at a certain point just kind of flipped that like I'm going to the league switch. And yeah, just kind of like <laughs> and he just kind of like ended the game on his own. Like I think he we were we were close and at one point, he just, like, stole a, a passing lane pass and just kind of just, like, went up, windmill, dunked it or something like that. And at that point, we were just like, okay, like, he's kind of, like, above us. But um, that was a cool experience. And then um, in college, my senior year, we actually got a, a chance to play against Kentucky. Um, really? Yeah. So the, the story is John Calipari went to Clarion and played there four years. So um, he always has that connection with us. Um, and when John Wall was there, they they set up that exhibition game as well, and they they blasted Clarion. So we got a chance to to play them again. And he flew us, or he, he got us down to Kentucky, which is probably like a four or five hour drive from from where we were. We're pretty close to Ohio, so we just went straight through to Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Um, and we we ended up playing the Aaron Fox, Malik Monk, Bam out of Bio team, um, and they absolutely destroyed us. Like, had, <laughs> <laughs> I want to say they had five five NBA players. I know those three for sure went. Um, Isaiah Briscoe had like a short stint in the G League and uh, and um, William Gabriel who was obviously just playing for the Trailblazers in the playoffs was also on that team. And they had like a bunch of other veterans and and it was it was kind of close for like the first two minutes. Um, it was like 13 to 10 or something like that. And then mm. we, we just got blasted by them. And the funny thing about that game is I don't know if it's exactly like true. The story is true. But the story is that we were um, pretty much presented with an option to only go man, no zone at all. We were, we were preparing to go zone because obviously we couldn't match up with them athletically. So we had to give ourselves uh, a chance um, somehow defensively. So we were preparing the whole week for this game to go zone. Um, and apparently John Calipari is like, there's no zone here. Like this is our first game in rut for the season. The, the fans are expecting a show. We need you guys to go man. Or like pretty much like the deal is off, like that type of thing. <laughs> um, oh, so yeah. So our man principles are like full court press because in our in our conference we're like we were probably one of the more faster teams. So we had full court press the whole game, and we brought that to Kentucky, and De'Aaron Fox was just like eating us up, like <laughs> <laughs> blowing past us. Like couldn't we couldn't trap him because we couldn't catch him to trap him. So it was uh, lob city, lob after lob, like and it was uh, over from there. <laughs> Dude, that's so that's so unfair that he did that to you guys on such short notice. I know, right? Like, crazy. So you guys didn't know at the time, so you were in the opening huddle of the game, and the coach was like, "Hey, listen, we're going man," and you're like, "Okay." It was, yeah, it was like the night before, or like two oh, days yeah. before, something like that. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah, we had a similar we had a similar experience with um, uh, when I was at Arizona Christian University, which was the NAIA school I played at. We, this is actually a great example of my overarching ideology on age because our backcourt was a 30-year-old Navy veteran because you can your eligibility pauses when you serve. And then a 31-year-old dude 
um, uh, who was like an all American that year, like one of the best players in the country. And, uh, uh, and then I, like, I was one of the younger guys on the team and I was 22 and I had already played in junior college a few years and all that stuff. So we played uh, same thing, like a tune up game, what was supposed to be a tune up game, uh, at a big sky conference team, uh, uh, Northern Arizona university in Flagstaff. And so they're like a mid major division one team. And we were just an NAIA team and, and, you know, they're, they're all ready for their, you know, their version of that Kentucky opening night, uh, ass beating. And the, the crowd is all ready. And we went out and we just, we just beat them. We just beat them because we were, we were older, we were smarter. And, uh, and, uh, from that standpoint, like we, uh, and we were one of the best NAIA teams in the country. We were in and out of the top five all season. And like, uh, yeah, we just, we just beat them and it was crazy. And I'll never forget, like after the game, the, uh, I read an article from the local paper and the head coach did, uh, did an interview from NAU and he's like, yeah, it wasn't an upset. They were just a better team than us. Like, and he was just like, <laughs> telling them that. and I think he was doing it to try to like rile up his guys and try to get, you know, a little bit of motivation out of them. But yeah, it was crazy. The same thing. Like we were just it, like, it, trust me, had we gone to Kentucky, we would have gotten absolutely murdered. We weren't that, <laughs> but, but we were a really good NAIA team. And, and I think that's one, one of the greatest examples I use for people who, uh, you know, played like, cause I've seen, I've seen enough of your, your, uh, uh athleticism and, and watching you play that I know that you could have played division one, at least if I dropped you in a, in a random division one practice right now, you'd be able to play, you know, I know you right. can, and I know I could too, but like everybody has their story. And, you know, for me, I didn't start playing until I was 20 and, you know, there's a two, there's a five year clock. So after my two years in junior college were up, uh, no division one would, would touch me for one season. You know, I had division one coaches that would, cause I was all conference my last year in junior college. And uh, I would have coaches call the, uh, the, the, my program and be like, what's the deal with this guy? And they'd have to be like, he's one year of eligibility. And they would all like just immediately drop contact. And I actually, it actually got to the point where I told the coach to stop telling me about it. Cause it was like depressing for me to like, cause I, like every, I was playing in Utah. So like every school in Utah offered me or called the, the school. And every single time I was just like, look, just, I don't want to hear it anymore. Like <laughs> this is depressing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. But the point is, is like, you know, we played small school basketball and the truth of the matter is, is like, you know, uh, small school basketball is really, really, really competitive and the players are really, really good. And the truth is, is I can take a lot of D1s and drop them into Kentucky for opening night against Deer and Fox and they will get rolled. And, exactly. and that, that's just the way that basketball works. Yeah. A lot of people just kind of have this misconception that like if you're not D1, then you're not good or something like that. There's a lot of D1 players that aren't good. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of D2 in NAIA and like even D3 players that can, that can play at those D1s for whatever reason, they just aren't there. Um, the gap, I think, really starts to show itself um, when you get like high, high major, like those guys. And even then, like you said, age can be the difference that, that, can, that can make those guys lose, like when it comes to tournament time or whatever case may be. And it's not, it's not until like later on in life where they become like NBA players and superstars and stuff like that, where they really kind of just like, take away from, from like the other guys, but the gap between these divisions and these different conferences and schools is not as big as people make it seem. Yeah, I a hundred percent agree. And, uh, actually, so this will segue into my next story. So I've played, uh, I wrote down the list of NBA players that I played against, obviously in Tucson, the vast majority of NBA players that come through here go to the U of A. 
Um, to the, on the top of my mind, I can't remember a Tucson local who made it to the NBA. The best player locally um, that people might recognize that went to high school here and came through here would be guys like either Bryce Cotton, who played in the NBA. Uh, yeah, that's right. Bryce Cotton played in the NBA. Okay, so do you remember Bryce Cotton? He was a little guard. He played for the Spurs. He played for the Jazz. And now he's the MVP of the, AD, uh, of the league in the NBL in Australia. The, yes, like I've he, heard the name. I've definitely heard the yeah. name before. So he just won the MVP of the NBL in Australia. I think he's won it two years in a row. But he went to he went to a local high school here in Tucson. He played uh, for a handful of NBA teams briefly, and now he's like the best player in that league over there. So he just makes more money. So that's why he doesn't come back. And then like uh, uh, Terrell Stokeland, who played at the University of Maryland, lefty score uh, was like over 20, twenty two points a game in the ACC. Then he's played in a bunch of different leagues overseas. Uh, he's actually the guy who hosts the private run here in Tucson that I play in all the time now. But uh, uh, so those are the only like local guys. But through from the U of A, uh, most of you guys know Alonzo Trier. I played with him a bunch. Uh, Rondé Hollis Jefferson, TJ McConnell, Nick Johnson, Kadeem Allen, Justice Winslow. Actually, Justice Winslow, I'll tell you guys, that was a different story. Aaron Gordon, uh, Derek Williams, Solomon Hill and Raleigh Elkins. There are a couple of guys like uh, um, what's the big white dude who plays for the Bulls? Laurie Markkinen. He, for whatever reason, never was around when I was playing. Like he was here while I was here, but I just never ran into him for whatever reason. But those are the guys that I remember seeing. And then the last one is Stanley Johnson, which leads me to this story. So, and it's a great example of just the, like I was talking about, like the winning and, and the way that changes as you get older. So Stanley Johnson was, you know, six foot five, 200 and you know, something pounds, just ripped, super, super good athlete. Um, but in high school, he was bigger and stronger than everybody. And so uh, uh, I had been out of college for about a year and I was still in pretty good shape, like as close to top shape as I, as I had been. And I was about 25 years old and, uh, um, you know, just like kind of peaking, so, what, so to speak, as a basketball player. And most importantly, I weighed as much as Stanley Johnson did. So he came to uh, – so him and TJ McConnell and Kadeem Allen ended up coming to, uh, to the rec center at the U of A to play with just a bunch of, you know, regular kids. And I happened to be there on the court when they came. And, of course, like this is the important disclaimer where you have to understand that, like, Stanley Johnson was probably, you know, in mess around mode when he came into the, to the gym. <laughs> But uh, uh, I'm not wired that way. I'm the kind of guy that, like, even in a random pickup game to this day, and I'm 29, I just take it super seriously. I've just always been wired in that way that I just I hate losing so much that I'm just wired in a way when I'm playing that I take it super seriously. Mm-hmm. So I started going at Stanley Johnson early in the game, and uh, it became clear that he needed to take it more seriously. And I started playing, like, five feet off of him because he couldn't shoot. <laughs> and then when he would try to drive into me and bully me, he couldn't bully me because I was as strong as him. Because yeah. at that age, as an 18-year-old kid, he was uh, against other 18-year-old kids. He was a grown man. But against grown men, he was just another guy, you know. And uh, um, and then I also ended up, like, just kind of focusing on all those little things to win, like breaking open when he would turn away from me or cutting back door and all these, like, little things that would help win games. And we ended up winning and I remember, uh, uh, like, literally the rest of that year when I would run into Stanley, he'd always, like, take it super, super seriously when he would play against me. And I tell that story just because, like, Stanley Johnson is, a, is 500 times the basketball player that I am, especially now. And uh, even in that particular season, 
in that at that point in his life, he was probably a lot better than me. But the point is, is that like, you know, when you're a grown man and you've been playing for a long time and you understand how to win and you're grown into your body, like it's just if you put an 18 year old kid in that environment, he's at a disadvantage. And right. from that standpoint, like that's a, that's a, another great example of how like like you there like Doug Christie used to take it to LeBron when LeBron was 2003, you know, in 2003. It's it's just really really difficult for for teenagers to compete against grown men at that level. Uh, but yeah, so that's my favorite that's my favorite story of an NBA player that I've like gone head to head with and had a bunch of success. Um, I've played against a bunch of guys where that hasn't been the case. Uh, but do you, do you have any other stories along those lines that you can share? Uh, I don't know about any necessarily stories like that, but I, I guess I'll, I'll go through my list. Um, in middle school, I actually matched up with Jeremy Grant. Oh, really? So, okay. Like, yeah, it was like uh, middle school championships. They he, he played for Holy Trinity, I believe that's the name of the school. They were in Maryland and my school was in D.C. And we just kind of like played for the area. We ended up winning, which is uh, – was pretty cool. So we played. I played Jeremy, but obviously played against Josh Hart in high school. Um, I played against Marcus Derrickson, who went to Georgetown. He was a uh, he was like in and out of the G League, I think, recently. Um, obviously, the Kentucky guys played against Tim Frazier. Oh, I got. A, I got. A, I guess I got a story for um, Malcolm Brogdon. I played against Malcolm Brogdon in like a local pro am league, the recently so the Kenner <laughs> League. <laughs> they 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 hold it at Georgetown. Um, and okay. he was just like completely in control of the game the entire time. Like there was really nothing. He did. Well, so I don't think he scored. Yeah, he's just like so strong, and like he was just nobody could move him off his spot. Wherever he wanted to go, he got there. He just he just controlled the game, and it was over pretty quickly. Um, yeah, that's off the top of my head. That's all I got right now. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the the last story that I'll share because a lot of these guys. So like. Uh, um, Stanley was in an open gym just at the rec center uh, messing around. Alonzo Trier, I only ran into him messing around at the rec center. Uh, uh, he just – I was blown away that he ended up being such a good NBA player because he – I I, I, he, he, I thought that he – like I thought at the University of Arizona that he was a little sporadic from a basketball IQ standpoint. And then whenever I'd see him in person, I always thought he was too small. Like he just wasn't that – impressive of an athlete and i he proved me way wrong because he went to the league and ended up being like a legitimate backup scorer off the bench uh stanley johnson was only at the rec center uh um let's see Derek williams i ran into when i was 18 years old at a random like a random city league game like i don't know how the hell he ended up at it because he was at school at the time i don't know why he was there but he absolutely destroyed all of us um, Solomon Hill was at a random open gym that I went to that was at McHale center, which is where they actually play their games. But, um, I got invited to, so my buddy, so I went to a local high school here in Tucson and there was a guy named, uh, uh, Matt Korchak, who was a, a big man who played at our school, six ten, just your stereotypical, like, uh, think like, uh, um, what's his name? who played for the, uh, the thunder with Kevin Durant forever. Um, the big white dude, Nick Collison. Nick Collison, just like that type of dude, just big 6'10", hard, playing hard type of guy. So he he played junior college here in Arizona, and then he ended up getting uh, uh, signed by Arizona. And he never got to play, really, because he was trapped behind Aaron Gordon and uh, uh, and Brandon Ashley and all of those guys that came through the U of A. So he just – all NBA players, so he just didn't get to, get to, didn't get to play much. 
but fortunately through his connection, cause him and I were really good friends. He was in my wedding. Like he, uh, would invite me to all of their private open gym runs. And so they have Richard Jefferson donated a ton of money back to the U of A years ago. And they built this place called the Richard Jefferson center. It's just this unbelievable practice facility. So one day over the summer, I happened to be back in town between, uh, my two seasons and, uh, 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 literally he invites me to this open run and I walk in, I'm just expecting it to be like a handful of guys that were on the team. And then, you know, maybe guys from around town and, uh, for whatever reason, uh, it happened to be at the same time that justice Winslow was on his visit. So at this point, so at this point, justice Winslow and Stanley Johnson were both the two recruits that Arizona was fighting over. And, uh, uh, justice Winslow had an offer from Duke and Arizona wanted justice Winslow over Stanley, but they ended up taking Stanley when Duke, when Duke signed justice Winslow, but justice Winslow was on his visit. So Sean Miller wanted all the guys there for this open run. Mm. So next thing you know, I end up in this game where literally like it's, uh, uh, TJ McConnell was there. Uh, Aaron Gordon was there. Um, uh, Kadeem Allen was there. Nick Johnson was there and justice Winslow was there. And then there were, I'm blanking on some of the other names, but there was some dude who was recently the player of the year in the big 10 conference. And like a bunch of these like huge names just happened to be in the area. And it proceeded to be like the most ridiculous string of pickup games that I've ever played in my entire life. Like it was like, I, I was rarely involved. Like I did end up catching a lob from TJ McConnell and I just did my job like spot up shooting and defending and stuff. Like I wasn't about to go solo dolo. And when I'm on the court with all guys, you know, but like, did like just one play, like I'm trailing Nick Johnson on defense and Nick Johnson's running the length of the floor. And I, I like, kind of run with him and jump with him to keep him off of the, uh, to keep him from taking a layup. And he just throws a drop off pass. And I like quick turn around and Aaron Gordon's just literally flying down the lane just for the most absurd one handed dunk. Like, like, thank God I got out of the way kind of thing. It just, uh, uh, like literally and a lot of those guys hadn't played in the NBA yet. Like Nick Johnson hadn't made it to the league yet. TJ McConnell hadn't made it to the league yet. I had no idea how good justice Winslow would be or any of those guys. Uh, but like, it's funny looking back at that now, because like at the time I had no idea that I was playing with like six dudes who would be in the NBA in a couple of years, you know? Uh, But it's, it's fun how you randomly just will find yourselves in situations like that without even really being ready for like Malcolm, like who the hell would think that you'd go to that game one day and then Malcolm Brogdon the whole time, you know? Exactly. He's just randomly suiting up and I'm like, okay. (laughs) <laughs> I guess you're gonna have to face Malcolm Brogdon today. Like, shit. And, and the hardest thing you'll find is like I like, that I've noticed is like, um, you'll get super hyped and you'll be on adrenaline and you'll be playing your ass off. And and there's always that phase at the beginning where the other dude doesn't really know your style. He doesn't know how you play. He's definitely not matching your effort. That you can kind of gain a little bit of an edge. And then all of a sudden, like, they realize that you think that you're getting a little bit of an edge and it clicks their competitive <laughs> instinct. And then they start dialing it up and they, then you can't do anything with them, you know. Yeah, and, and yeah. Like, that, that, like, even with Stanley Johnson at the end of the year, because I ran into him at the beginning of the year, at the end of the year after his full season, 
when he really went through Arizona's strength and conditioning program and he was even bigger and even stronger. Like there was nothing I could do with him physically at that point. Like it's just, it's just unbelievable. Uh, the, the level of athletes that those guys are and just in the skill to go with it, you know, it's ridiculous, which is crazy. Cause I actually thought Stanley would be a better NBA player. I really don't know what happened. I did too. Uh, before I let you go, I want to ask you a question. So um, I've asked everybody that I've had on since the end of the season, where, where do you have LeBron all time after this season and why? Okay. Uh, I have him second currently. I'm, I'm fairly certain that our, that our um, ranking of him is, is very similar. Um, I don't think anyone else is like, other than Jordan being like slightly above him, I don't think anyone else has uh, claimed for second at this point anymore. It's just like those two and in the field. Um, I'd say um, just the dominance that he's shown, like since from the beginning of his career to now, especially once he started like living in the finals for like a decade straight, is just kind of like unparalleled. You know what I mean? Like it's only the only person that can, that can make a claim to, to LeBron's career is MJ at this point. Maybe, um, I guess like Kareem, you could throw Kareem in there just because he's he's racked up so many accolades. Um, but like, if you look at it from like a career standpoint, obviously he's probably going to finish at at worst the second all time leading scorer. Um, I think he's going to get first. Um, he's going to be up there in all the time rebounds, assists, steals, like pretty much everything, playoffs and regular season, which is which is also crazy. Um, he has the championships, he has the MVPs, he has the All NBAs, All Defense all-stars, all that stuff. So you look at his, like, resume and how many awards he has and all that stuff, he has to be there. And then you just look at him as a player. Um, then it's just, like, how many players can you legit say is a better basketball player than LeBron? It's, like, not really anyone other than maybe Michael, you know what I mean? So it's, just like, he's definitely second, at least for me. Yeah, I'm with you. I don't think I don't think there's a coherent case for anybody to be above him other than MJ. I do still give an edge to MJ, I think like with everybody, like with Kareem, you can point to the fact that, you know, when he was winning at the end of his career, he was in a like not just a supporting role, but like like he was the third best player on the team there at the end. And uh, when you look at uh, um, uh, like Magic, other guys that you would consider up in that top five, similar circumstances where their their actual period of dominance, where they were the best player in the league for that stretch of time was much shorter. And you know, with, uh, with LeBron, like, I think his opportunity is from this year forward in the sense that, you know, up to age 35, both LeBron and MJ just had this decade long, you know, stretch where they were either the best player in the league or in our argument for the best player in the league. And I think that, um, uh, where LeBron can really separate himself is to be that guy who's 37 or 36, Mm -hmm and still somehow better than everybody. Cause that's where you would have to start pointing to uh, just to the longevity of his dominance. But I'm with you. I think like, I think like the argument for any other player over him at number two has kind of disappeared after the season. It just doesn't really make any sense to me, but I wanted to get, I wanted to get your feel for it um, just cause I'm going to ask everybody that I bring on, but Hey, Justin, I really appreciate you taking the time. We've been going for about an hour. I really appreciate you taking the time to make this work. I actually, uh, enjoy following your fitness related stuff. I tried part of your push workout yesterday as part of my chest day. The, the one with the five by five by five with the triangles and then the, the uprights and stuff. Uh, keep sharing stuff like that. I really like that stuff. Oh, um, we'll do. We'll do. 
Yeah. So yeah, I appreciate you having me on, man. Um, uh, if you if you want to check over at the Instagram, I have like a lot more like way to stuff. It's like at performance prowess. Um, so yeah, for sure, if you if you want to give a yeah, follow, I'll come over there and I'll follow you on Instagram. And uh, and let's uh, like like I said, I had no idea you were interested in doing this kind of thing. So let's get let's get back together and do something like this as we get closer to the season. Oh, for sure, no problem. All right, man. Have a good rest of your day. Uh, you too, bro.